a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey, guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We've reached verse 9 of chapter 3 in our study of Romans. And so at this point, Paul has been used by the Holy Spirit to clarify man's problem. And man's problem, of course, is himself. Man's problem is sin. And that sin is a lot worse than the natural man wants to think. I think most people who have at least a little bit of honesty about them, will be pretty quick to acknowledge that, yes, they've sinned. Now, they may not like that word. They may want to say, oh, I've made mistakes, or I've done things I shouldn't have done, uh, you know, 
A lot of people don't like the word sin. In fact, some psychologists, I'm sure you're aware of this, have tried to argue we should never, ever use that word. They don't like it at all. Some psychologists will do their very best to help us feel better about ourselves. Of course, they, they, they sometimes they try to do that by helping us do what we really want to do, helping us feel good about doing what we really want to do, or maybe sometimes make us feel okay by blaming somebody else for my wrongdoing or helping me believe that what I did was really not that bad. It wasn't that wrong. I shouldn't feel guilty. So many psychologists try to help relieve us of our feelings of guilt one way or another. And often it's by trying to convince me I'm not really guilty at all. And we can see how easy it is to blame somebody else. I mean, we tend to do that naturally, don't we? It just springs to our minds. It's got to be somebody else's fault. <laughs> and of course, it's really true that many people have had to grow up in horrible circumstances or having to live right now in horrible circumstances. And it's very tempting just to blame those circumstances or those people uh, for whatever it is we've decided to do. But the truth is, no matter what our circumstances are, and this can be very tough for some of us, but we are each one responsible for making right choices before God. We are responsible for our sins. And God says, in essence, you want to know the truth? You feel guilty because you are guilty. (laughs) And by the way, if you don't happen to feel guilty, you're still guilty. (laughs) God's driving home the point that all of us are in the same boat. We're all sinners. We're all guilty. When we share with others that we have a sin problem, sometimes they get the idea that we're trying to tell them that we're better than they are somehow. So we need to go to great lengths and say, no, 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 no. We're all in the same sinking boat. But we found the ultimate life preserver. His name's Jesus. Jesus can and will forgive us of our sins if we're willing to confess our sins to him and trust him. But Paul knows that none of us can really come to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation until we realize how desperately we need that forgiveness and that salvation. And we can't realize how desperately we need forgiveness and salvation until we realize how serious our sin problem really is. So the Holy Spirit has caused Paul to write these first chapters of his letter to the Romans to give us this opportunity to agree with God about our horrific sin problem. Maybe you've heard preachers say, and I think this is a good thing to say, you may have heard preachers say, we can't fully appreciate the good news until, can you finish it? Until we fully appreciate the bad news. That's true. That's true. And in these first three chapters of Romans, God is using Paul to help us fully appreciate the bad news. Sometimes people are tempted to make some so-called evangelistic efforts to reach people, but they're focusing exclusively on the idea that you ought to trust Jesus because Jesus is going to make your life a lot better than it is now, or or Jesus is going to help you have better relationships with other people, or Jesus is going to bring you some happiness that you don't have right now. But if we're not careful, we can leave out the major issue here that we have a massive sin problem and we can't fix it. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus will save us 
from our sins and the consequences of our sins and the wrath of God if we will simply trust Him. And when we truly trust Him, He will change us forever from the inside out. Paul's going to get there. I'm more and more convinced that one of the biggest obstacles to salvation for many, many people today is that they're convinced that their particular sins, quote, unquote, (laughs) they may not like the word, like I said, but they're not really so bad. Our entire culture has worked very hard in recent decades, especially, to convince people that their sins are really not such a big deal, maybe not sins at all. Now, the sins of some people, (laughs) like Hitler, or Stalin, or Mao, or I guess in our country, somebody in the other political party, their sins are really bad. They're really horrible. But my little lies and deceptions, my little angry snits, my little grudges, my little bit of egotism, maybe my little bit of selfishness, that's not such a big deal. It's really pretty trivial, pretty minor. I was thinking about that a few weeks ago, and I'm going to share some of the thoughts that came to my mind. I thought, you know, there really are for most of us some kinds of sins that cause us to be outraged. You know, we, we just get outraged when we hear about certain things. And I thought, what are, what are some of those? What, what are the kind of things that cause us to be really outraged? And my mind immediately went to stories of people who have deliberately harmed innocent little kids. You know, when we hear those stories, we're outraged. Or maybe people who've deliberately harmed trusting, loyal, innocent pets. So anybody who's deliberately, for example, tortured a child or tortured a pet, you know, that causes, and it should, of course, causes outrage in us. Same kind of outrage, if you remember the account of David after he had sinned against God by adultery with Bathsheba and by killing Uriah and Nathan came to him, told him the story of the poor man's pet lamb. Remember that? I'm not going to go over it right now, but you might want to check that out. But, but David was outraged, outraged at that. And then I thought what God's trying to say to us when we think of things like this, that cause us to be outraged is that from his perspective, all sin is like that. It's all like that. It's just not easy for us to see sin like God sees sin. By God's grace, the Apostle Paul understood this a lot better than most of us do. And Paul wants to drive into our hearts the seriousness of our sin problem. Now, it's interesting how he does it. Have you ever noticed that from time to time, when I'm teaching a Bible study, I'll I'll try to make a point by putting up a series of Bible verses on the screen, just one right after the other. And and what I'm trying to say is, look, we know this is true because God says this, and God says this, and God says this, and I just keep putting verses up there. You may remember I did that a couple of weeks ago when I was trying to emphasize how God promised salvation in the Old Testament. Lists of Bible verses on a topic can be really powerful. It enables us to see verse after verse after verse from God's word of God's truth about a particular issue. Let me give you another example. I remember this was many, many decades ago now, but I was struggling with the fact that some denominations, and I knew people in those denominations whom I loved and respected, but some denominations teach that Christians can lose their salvation. And of course, They offer Bible verses to make their point. They tell you why they believe that. 
So I began to list all those verses that I could find that supported that belief. But then I also made a list of all the verses that I could find that supported the security of the believer, that the Bible teaches that we are secure in Christ for eternity. And then I tried to be honest about this. I tried to understand how those people tried to understand the security verses. And then if the security of the believer was true, how I could understand the verses that they used to support their belief. Well, needless to say, that study definitely solidified my convictions about the security of the believer, which I believe, by the way, is more appropriately called perseverance of the saints. I think that's a better name for that doctrine. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make right now is making lists of verses is a wonderful way to study a particular controversial issue. We know God's word does not contradict itself. But sometimes on the surface, at first glance, it seems to. (laughs) You say, wait a minute, God, didn't you say this? How could you say this? Doesn't that contradict? But he doesn't contradict himself. So what we need to do is put it all together. And when we understand it correctly, we'll find God's straight and narrow way and the balance between the ditches. That's what God wants us to find. But compiling lists of verses can be a very powerful way to study God's word. And the Holy Spirit used Paul here in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 to do that very thing. So let's read it. Remember, this is God's word. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written. And then in verses 10 through 12, he first cites Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3, which are virtually the same words in both Psalms. And notice how emphatically God states this truth. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then in verse 13, Paul quotes Psalm 5, verse 9, and Psalm 140, verse 3. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And then verse 14 is from Psalm 10, verse 7. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And then verses 15 through 17 is from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 and 8. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And then verse 18 is from Psalm 36, verse 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul begins back in verse 9 by stating what he's already driven home very powerfully. He's going to pile on even more evidence. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So when he says all, both Jews and Greeks, it's his way of saying the whole human race. We're all descendants of Adam. We're all under sin. We're all under the power of sin. We're all slaves to sin. We're all under the guilt of sin. But now, even though all of us are born under sin, because of Jesus, we can 
by trusting Jesus, be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and sin and into the kingdom of Jesus, kingdom of light, so we don't have to remain under sin. But all of humanity is in one of two camps. People are either under sin or they're under grace. We're under the power of sin. We are slaves of sin or we're slaves of righteousness. That's Paul's term. He uses it in chapter six. We'll get there eventually, Lord willing. When he says in verses 10, 11, and 12, where he quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our natural man wants to react to that. <laughs> we want to say, wait a minute, Paul. Surely you're exaggerating here. I mean, none, not one, not even one, no one. And his point, of course, is this. We are all in the same boat. We're all descended from Adam. We've all inherited his sin nature. We've all inherited a hardened heart. We're all spiritually blind. We're all spiritually dead, every one of us. He says, no one understands. Listen to what he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When you talk to a natural man about the things of God, about spiritual truth, he thinks that's foolishness. He just rolls his eyes because he's trying to process it with a fallen natural brain, and he can't. All God's truth just sounds ridiculous to him. Mere human reasoning using our fallen brains will not bring us to an understanding of God. Men can even read the Bible. They can even study Christian apologetics. But unless they're willing for God to do some work in their hearts, and, and unless God's working in their hearts, they're not going to get it. They may put forth enough effort to try to explain it away, but more often they don't even do that. They just ridicule. They just scoff. They mock. They scorn. It's just nonsense to them. And someone might say, wait, wait a minute, Paul. And since you're quoting David, wait a minute, David. <laughs> you said no one even seeks for God? Surely there are a lot of people out there who are trying to find God, aren't they? No. They're not. They may claim to be seeking God, but what they're really seeking is a substitute for God, an imaginary God, a little G God who won't be too serious about their sin, a little G God who will see their sin kind of like they themselves see their sin, kind of trivial, not such a big deal. And then he used the word worthless there in verse 12. It means useless, good for nothing. And we might think, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the great non-Christian thinkers, the great non-Christian scientists? They performed a lot of great things, haven't they, to make life better for us? And yes, in one sense, we could agree with that. It's called God's common grace. They have discovered things that make life better for us now. But in the light of eternity, 
all this stuff is, is kind of meaningless and worthless. A thousand years from now, all the great discoveries, all the great inventions that made life seem easier for us now, better for us now, will seem very, very trivial, guys. We, we've got to see things from God's perspective. The perspective of eternity, everything that doesn't lead to faith in Jesus, everything that doesn't lead to the glory of God, it's going to seem pretty pointless. It's going to seem pretty worthless. Hard for us to see that, isn't it? Apart from God's work in our hearts, no one does good. And when we trust Jesus, His Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And really, because it's Him, even then, it's not ultimately us who's doing good. It's Him working through us. Of course, we work with Him. We agree with Him. We cooperate with Him. But we always need to realize that without Him, we can do nothing good. We work with Him. He works through us. Verse 13 is from Psalm 5-9 and Psalm 140, verse 3. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The throat's an open grave. Isn't that a horrific metaphor? Can you imagine the disgusting, putrefying, nauseating odor that might come from a grave where a dead body's in there just rotting away? It's disgusting. God's telling us that, spiritually speaking, that's what comes out of our mouths. Words that deceive. He mentions that explicitly. But many other kinds of words. Words that are designed to make us feel better and put others in their place, put others down, hurt them. Words that are designed to make us seem noble and righteous at the expense of others. Words of arrogance, words of pride, words of egotism, even though they may sound kind of subtle and we can make it sound kind of cool. He's comparing the things that come out of our mouths here to the venom of asps. We're not 100% sure which venomous snakes he was thinking about when he referred to the asps, but the Greek word is translated asps. Actually, it's a transliterated word. The Greek word is pretty much the same, aspis. Aspis, but the but the best guess that I've seen is the Egyptian cobra, an extremely venomous, deadly snake from North Africa. And he's saying, apart from Jesus, what comes out of our mouths is deadly, spiritual equivalent to cobra venom. When we tell lies, when we slander and tear down others, when we use our mouths to rationalize and excuse ourselves instead of repenting, when words come out driven by anger or selfishness or rage, when God's name comes out of our mouth and we're not talking reverently about him or not talking to him, we go on and on and on. When we do those things, we're siding with the devil, the serpent. And the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Our words can be used for that purpose. They're deadly, they're destructive. The half-brother of our Lord Jesus, James, wrote the first book of the New Testament to be written probably about 15 years after Jesus died and rose again. And James wrote these words in the very first book of the New Testament to be written. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it's set on fire by hell. Can do an awful lot of damage. This is true of all of us until we repent and are filled with the Holy Spirit, only God can tame our tongues. Verse 14 is from Psalm 10, verse 7. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He's 
Continuing the thought, of course, from verse 13, curses imply we want to see other people come to harm. We use our mouths to make that happen. We spread bad rumors about other people. We try to damage the good reputation of others. We may use innuendos and hints and suggestions to try to hurt somebody else's reputation. We'd like nothing more than to see them crash and burn. And then he mentions bitterness. Bitterness is the opposite of forgiveness. When we feel hurt, we become bitter and we aim to get revenge instead of simply genuinely forgiving people from our hearts. We can forgive people by the grace of Jesus, otherwise full of bitterness. Paul's going to deal with this in more detail later in his letter, but let's just kind of look ahead right now and see it briefly. It's in chapter 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine. That's God speaking. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. The natural man will never listen to words like this. Only the Spirit of God can enable us to forgive others from our heart so that that bitterness won't be flowing out of our lips. Verses 15, 16, and 17 are from Isaiah chapter 59. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. We can see how all these verses tie together. If bitterness is not dealt with, it can lead to violence. People can justify violence by thinking, they had it coming to them. I needed revenge. <laughs> People think like that. You know, the violence that we've experienced in the past few years associated with a so-called Black Lives Matter movement was, a, was a, that kind of violence. They excused their violence on the basis that they thought, these people have it coming to them. Why? Because of what their ancestors did. It was bitter revenge. It was ugly, horrible sin. But those who don't know God, they, they easily can justify things like this. Verse 17, Paul writes, the way of peace they have not known. When you look at their lives, you see in their wake, ruin, misery, certainly no peace. They're miserable. They go around making other people miserable. They don't know the peace of God. They don't know the peace that Jesus can give. Jesus said, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have, there it is, peace. In the world, you shall have tribulation, but be a good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But we cannot find that peace apart from Jesus. These people don't know Jesus. They don't know the way of peace. And then verse 18 is so, so powerful. It's from Psalm 36, verse 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Over and over and over again, God warns us that we must fear him. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Psalm 34, David wrote, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you what? The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. 
Proverbs 23, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. In 2 Chronicles 19, we find good King Jehoshaphat trying to turn the leaders of Jerusalem back to God. And God puts these words in his mouth. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there's no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. And then God put these words in Job's mouth in what most scholars believe is the very first book of the Bible ever to be written, even before Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Proverbs 15, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 8, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Get the point? We could go on. Some people tend to have a bad response to this command. They want to say, no, 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 no. I don't think God wants us to be afraid of him. And I guess maybe they're thinking badly about what God's saying. Certainly God doesn't want us to be afraid of him and the fact that he might just capriciously whack us for no reason at all. Of course, God loves us. He's not capricious. But when God tells us we must fear him, he wants us to know that he is very, very serious about his righteousness and his holiness. And he's very, very serious about sin and rebellion and our selfishness. When we sin and try to convince ourselves that it's not a big deal, it proves, at least at that moment, there is no fear of God before our eyes. If we had the fear of God in us, when we realize that we've had a bad attitude, we would tremble. God's serious about his commands. I've talked about this a lot, but I've known Christians who even use his name frivolously, an exclamation of surprise or disappointment or trying to make a strong point or anger or delight or whatever. When they do that, there's no fear of God before their eyes. They're trivializing his name. God's serious about his name. He commands us, don't use it carelessly. Did you notice as we read through those verses how many times the fear of God is paired with wisdom and knowledge? Wisdom implies the ability to make good decisions. Without the fear of the Lord, we don't have it. We'll think we have it. We'll go around making decisions on the basis of our selfish desires, and they will not come out very good. <laughs> when we learn the fear of the Lord, God will use that fear to enable us to make wise decisions. We'll make decisions based on what brings God the most glory. During the COVID shutdowns a couple of years ago, Vicki and I spent some time worshiping online with the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. And we learned to really appreciate their pastor, Robert Jeffress. I think he's a wonderful man of God. We also learned to appreciate their choir and their orchestra. And we were thrilled to find out that they put many of their worship songs on YouTube online, along with the lyrics that, that show up as they sing it so we can worship with them. <laughs> So what we'd do is we'd find some of those songs, we'd crank up the volume in our den, stand in front of our big den window and lift our hands to the Lord and just worship with the 
choir of the First Baptist Church Dallas. We had some really wonderful experiences there in our den. And one day we heard them sing this song that I'm going to play for you right now. It's the first time I had ever heard it. I had not heard it before I heard them sing it. And it made a huge impression on me, and it still does every time I sing it. I think it's a very powerful song. So to conclude today's study, I'm going to ask you to maybe stand, (laughs) get somewhere where you can see the words on the screen. And if you like, join in with the First Baptist Dallas Choir as they sing this awesome song.
Father, you've made it clear that you are a God to be feared. You are holy, you are righteous, and you are serious about sin. And you're going to teach us more about yourself, and you're going to teach us very important lessons and ways to bring you lots of glory if we will learn to fear you, if we will learn to see sin like you see sin. Would you please forgive us for trivializing sin? We don't want to do that, Lord. We want to be honest with you, and we want to agree with you when you teach us the truth about yourself and about sin. Teach us to fear you, Lord, the way we ought to fear you. Teach us to worship you. Teach us to love you. Lord, help us to internalize these things well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.